from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. The Gospel of Mark, the fourth chapter, verses 26 through 34, page 36 in the New Testament in your pew Bible. Please feel free to follow along as I read aloud. Listen to God's word to you and to me. Jesus also said the kingdom of God is, is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe at once, he goes in with his sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Growing up in uh, Philadelphia, I think the first time I ever saw kudzu was about 17 years ago. My mother and my stepfather had just purchased property on the banks of Lake Teleco, which is a human-made lake out of the Little Tennessee River in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, about 30 minutes drive south from Murrayville, Tennessee. Katie and I were, were driving from Pennsylvania down Interstate 81, and we came into Tennessee, and I noticed long stretches of road where the landscape was covered with this emerald green vine. It was like a shape shifter as it would conform to the mold of the trees and the bushes and the light poles and anything in the way of its growth path. I later learned that this vine species originated in Japan and was uh, introduced to the United States during our centennial year, 1876, at the World's Fair in Philadelphia. I also learned that during the early 1930s, kudzu was believed to be an agricultural savior. 
fact, in 1935, Congress sought to remedy the epidemic of soil erosion in the South and in the Midwest through a program that would eventually produce 70, mean, 70 million rather kudzu seedlings that came to life in dedicated nurseries and, and government-subsidized farms. Here in Atlanta, there was a popular radio broadcaster and an Atlanta Constitution columnist who became sort of the de facto evangelist for kudzu and for its miracle-working vine. He, in fact, would, would speak like a preacher on the radio. He would, he would write columns in the Atlanta Constitution heralding this plant, this vine, as the savior of southern farms. That, in fact, kudzu would be the thing that allowed for southern farms to live Again, And it wasn't just planted on farms, as many of you know, as railroad and highway developers carved their way through the landscape, kudzu was planted to rejuvenate the countryside. Of course, uh, this vine, which was once deemed to be a miracle, is now considered by many people, especially those who have grown up with kudzu their whole life in the South, they consider it, many consider it to be a vice, something negative. And, and over the last several decades, it has become a popular icon in Southern culture. From poetry to sociology to art to music, even to politics, kudzu's rapid, all-encompassing growth is an accessible metaphor for many features and characteristics of Southern life. Artists have depicted kudzu overtaking abandoned cars and homes in, in rural parts of the South to depict what poverty does in overtaking a community. Alice Walker, the great author of The Color Purple, once compared racism to creeping kudzu that consumes everything in its path. Even in politics, some holding more conservative outlooks have described liberalism as an ever-creeping kudzu trying to take over the more traditional South. We could also use it in a contemporary way, can't we? We think about the tragic news surrounding Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. We might also apply this, this metaphor to suicidal desperation, to mental illness like this rampant vine. One can be consumed, can be overtaken by darkness, they can't see a single solitary way out. Like kudzu creeping in, that darkness, that shadow has overcome them. And while this is somewhat of an aside, it is really actually essential to the gospel proclamation. Let me say that if you are in that place, if that metaphor seems apropos for your own mental health, then tell somebody. Do not suffer in silence. Do not suffer alone. Reach out to a pastor. Reach out to a friend, to a family member. Tell somebody because there is a way to cut back these vines. 
There is a way out. So ask someone for help. I wanted to get us thinking about kudzu this morning. More specifically, I wanted to get us thinking about how the vast majority of us likely have a negative or unfavorable reaction to this popular vine. Now, I know it's been used in more positive ways these days. It's been used to make baskets, to weave baskets. Even some people eat it. Someone told me this morning that they've had a kudzu biscuit. I'm probably not going to try that. But there are positive ways to use kudzu. But I'm going to guess that for most of us, for most of us, when we... When we think about this vine, we have an unfavorable response. When employed in the various ways I just mentioned ago, right? From poverty to racism, to perceived political threats, to desperation, the, the, the kudzu metaphor depicts adverse situations. It depicts problems. It depicts some sort of loss or some sort of grief, right? I mean, we'd be hard-pressed to find a writer to spin it positively. It would be like a, a father who has just experienced the birth of their first child, them sitting down to pen in their, their journal. When my baby was born, I felt a euphoria and joy come over me like, kudzu covering a landscape. No, you would never write that. You would never say that. It doesn't make any sense because that gift of new life is something positive. When we associate this image and metaphor with something negative, it would sound so odd because it's so often used in our culture to describe something unfavorable or even confrontational. Now imagine this, church, if Jesus began his parable with these words, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable will we use for it? It's like kudzu, which when sown upon the ground is small, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes a great vine. If Jesus was in this pulpit and he was preaching that sermon, you may turn to your neighbor and you may say, did he just compare God's kingdom to kudzu? That feeling, I think, would have been similar to the one possessed by the people who heard Jesus speak these words for the first time when he compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. When he compared the kingdom of God to a mustard shrub, did Jesus just say the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed? Did he just say that the kingdom of God is like a mustard shrub? You see, this seed and this shrub, they, they were ubiquitous in this time. They were, they were common and, and they were so ordinary. And while it wasn't as fast growing or as dense as kudzu, it still had the power to infiltrate and had the, the capacity to take over an entire landscape. So why did Jesus pick the mustard seed? Why did he pick the mustard shrub? I mean, why didn't he choose the handsome tree from Lebanon? You know, those cedar trees who, who capture strength and beauty. Like so many Old Testament writers who came before Jesus had talked about that tree. Why didn't Jesus use that tree as a metaphor for the kingdom of God? Or, or even a pomegranate tree or, or a wild flower grove. Why the mustard seed? Why the mustard shrub? 
I mean, after all, we're talking about God's kingdom here. We're, we're talking about God's reign. We're talking about God's way and will in the world. We're talking about a kingdom of justice and peace. We're talking about a, a rule and a reign of reconciliation, love, and mercy. We're talking about something beautiful. We're talking about something positive. Wouldn't a species more pleasant, less aggressive, less ordinary, or at least better thought of be a more appropriate metaphor for the kingdom of God. As we'll continue to discover throughout this series, Mark's Jesus will act and teach in ways that are unexpected and surprising. And these parables within this chapter of Mark's gospel are no exception. But we must say this, that, that while it... While it is a little bit surprising and a little bit unexpected, it is certainly not unintentional. Jesus moves and acts and teaches with great intention. And so his choice to liken the kingdom of God to that of a mustard seed and a mustard shrub is well-conceived, I think. What we know about the scriptures and what we have discerned about the kingdom of God, I think he's on to something here in at least three distinct ways. The first way is this. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God will advance in common and ordinary ways. This past week, I, I, I read an article about a plant called Rothschild's orchid. It's only found in the rainforests of Borneo. Okay, It only grows there. It has these large size, clear leaves that, that actually are horizontal. It gives the impression that the plant is ready to take flight, a very unique look. And people have paid up to $5,000 for one single Rothschild orchid. With Jesus' parable, comparing the kingdom to a mustard seed, Jesus is not saying that the kingdom of God is exclusive or even exotic like Rothschild's orchid. On the contrary, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the will of God is ordinary, like a mustard seed, and it advances in ordinary and common ways. Friends, it will be received, this kingdom, in our ordinary lives. It's evidence in a wife who fulfills that part of the marriage covenant until death do us part as she visits her husband who now lives in a home that cares for Alzheimer's patients. Despite the fact that he has no idea who she is, every day she comes she caresses his hair. She sings to him. She kisses him on the lips, speaks words of love, claiming for him God's promises and shares in life in that common, ordinary place. That's how the kingdom of God advances. It's evidence in a group of men and women who meet in a common room here 
at the corner of 16th and Peachtree for something called Redemption After Prison. It's facilitated by one of our members and one of our staff members and ordinary meals and ordinary conversations around ordinary tables with ordinary people are discerning what it means to claim God's redemptive love and power post their incarceration. The kingdom of God comes in ordinary ways. It's evidenced in a school board member's daily and routine devotion to the children of this city. It's evidenced in a group of students who just got back yesterday, middle school and then high school students who went to Texas to participate in the Presbyterian Disaster Assistance Ministry. It's evidenced in the banker's commitment to live the ethics of Jesus in their professional life. It's evidenced in the retirees' generosity of time and talent and treasure to support that non prophet that seeks justice and inclusion in our beloved city. Friends, the kingdom of God is not just found in the rainforests of Borneo. The kingdom of God is in Atlanta. The kingdom of God is in your home. It's in your life. It's advancing in common and ordinary ways. Our challenge then in a secular age, our challenge is to actually attribute the kingdom of God to God, that it is not our work, but it's God's work. And that's what that first parable I think is all about. We don't make that seed grow. God makes it grow. The kingdom grows because of God's desire and God's will. And our role in this kingdom is to name it, to give credit where credit is due and say, this is what God is doing here in this place and around the world. And to prayerfully discern where you and I are called to participate in this kingdom's coming. So that's the first big idea, I think, and why this, this parable is well-conceived. The kingdom of God advances in common and ordinary ways. It leads to this second idea. There is no place in, in this world, and there's no place in this life where God's kingdom is off limits. There's no place where God's kingdom is off limits like kudzu and like the mustard shrub, it will grow and advance where it wills. If it wants to grow on Peachtree Street, it'll grow on Peachtree Street. If it wants to grow on Wall Street, it'll grow on Wall Street. If it wants to grow on Pennsylvania Avenue, it'll grow on Pennsylvania Avenue. The kingdom of God will grow where it wants to grow. It'll grow in the world. But make no mistake, the kingdom of God also wants to advance in your world in your life. Now, for some of us, this is going to be more easy uh, to imagine because I, I want you to depict sort of a garden scene, and I, and I know that will be easier for some of you who, unlike me, don't mind getting your hands dirty. So I want you to picture your life as a garden. And in that garden, there are trees and there are plants and there are flowers and there are shrubs. And, and over here in, in part of the garden of your life, there's a tree that represents your family relationships and your family life. And then there's a flower right here that represents your economic life. And then there's a shrub right here in the garden that represents your occupation, what you do to earn your way in the world. And then there's a, a flower here that represents your politics. And then the, the garden kind of goes around the side of the house where not everybody can see. And back there, there's a shrub that represents the secret things that you do. 
and the secret things that you think. And you, and you have this garden and you have these plants and you have these flowers and they all represent an aspect of your life and they are all in their place. You know how to take care of them. You know what kind of nutrients they need. You know how to water them and, and tend to them. And then all of a sudden you hear a parable like this one that says the mustard seed and the, and the mustard shrub that is the kingdom of God wants to advance and overtake the whole plot, the whole garden. In other words, God's reign and God's way want to influence your family life, want to influence your political life, want to influence your economic life, want to influence your secret life, want to influence your social life, want to influence your professional life. The kingdom of God wants to grow in every sphere of your life. And I think this brings us to another great lead-in to the third way Jesus' mustard seed is this parable is well conceived. So one, the kingdom advances in ordinary and common ways. Two, the, the kingdom will advance wherever it wants to advance. And three, I think by choosing, by Jesus' choice to choose this common, ordinary, and perhaps unfavorable metaphor, is he not foreshadowing the way that people and principalities and powers will try to trim back and cut down the kingdom of God? Isn't it interesting that he uses something more negative? It had positive use for sure, but something that could overtake something else. Is he not foreshadowing? his own death. Is he not foreshadowing that there will be people throughout the ages with their shears ready to cut back the kingdom of God because they don't want it growing in their garden. They don't want the mustard shrub to overtake their garden. They want, don't want it to encroach on family life or financial life or professional life or secret life or on our politics. So some think, God, you can, have, you can have this part of the garden. There's the kingdom shrub. I'll water it on Sundays. I'll take care of it on Sundays. But I don't want it to overtake the whole garden because I want to have my autonomy. I want to have my control over these plants and these, these flowers. And I'll cut it back because I don't want it to encroach on these other areas. And so that's what we do, right? We, we cut back the kingdom. We take out our, 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 our shears. We, we take out those, those clippers and we begin to, to cut it back as we sense that it's calling for us to do something in our personal lives or to do something in our spiritual lives or to do something with our money or our time. And we start cutting it back so that we can justify the existence of all these other plants the way that we want them to exist. Now, I want to give an example of this, and I want to preface it uh, as a way of preparing you for what you're about to hear by saying that I am not one prone to take on politicians from the pulpit. I'm keenly aware that we have a diversity of political worldviews. However, when a politician takes on the Bible, I feel like that's fair game for a preacher. Because I think that's my area, right? 
Like that's your area as Christians. That's our collective area. Just like I may some, say something or interpretation in scripture that you don't connect with, you can say, hey, pastor, I read that in a different way and that's what makes church beautiful. And that's what makes our community beautiful. But I want to give an example of the ways in which shrubs of the kingdom can sometimes get cut back, okay? We witnessed it, I think, on a national stage as the attorney general misappropriated, misappropriated one single verse from chapter 13 of the book of Romans to defend a policy that has separated 2,000 children from their parents seeking to cross the U.S. border illegally. I mean, it was, also, it was almost as if we were watching, as a Christian, I felt this way, the shrub and the vine be cut back. Because let me say this, church, the shrub of the kingdom of God does not stop advancing with one chapter of the Bible nor does it stop advancing with one single solitary verse in the Bible. The kingdom of God advances in Romans 12 as well, which says, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints. Oh, and by the way, extend hospitality to strangers. It doesn't stop advancing in Romans 13 or Romans 12. It continues to advance in Matthew 19, 14, when Jesus says, let the children come unto me. It doesn't stop advancing in Matthew 19. It advances with every single solitary call to the people of God to care for the alien in your midst, to care for the stranger, to look after the weak and the vulnerable and the poor. Now look, I want to be very clear with you. I think Mr. Sessions took out hedge clippers, shears that look a lot like mine. Because I know what that's like. I know what it's like to kind of cut back the kingdom of God. I do it all the time. When I feel like it's encroaching on, on, on my own self-justified positions or my own behavior or my own actions, maybe you know what that's like too. When you take those shears out and you begin to cut back the king because you don't want it to impact your financial life. You want to impact your time. You want to impact what God is, is calling you to actually do, to forgive, to be gracious, to be generous and kind. So we just keep cutting it back. I stand in those shoes. I stand in those shoes all the time. And so the question is, as a church, are we willing and able to put away those shears and let the kingdom of God advance in the garden of our lives to capture every single area? Let me finish with this image and thought. I didn't know this, but did you know, and probably many of you know this, that kudzu is not parasitic. Did you know that? I had no idea that it, that it wasn't parasitic. When it, when it covers a tree or a field or a roadside, it doesn't rob that which it covers of any nutrients. The thing still lives. Your family life, friends, your professional life, your social life, your politics, 
they still live. They're just covered by the kingdom. They're covered by the kingdom of God. And here's a beautiful part of this text that is towards the end. When, when the birds of the air, right? When the birds of the air, and in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, when, when he talks about the birds of the air, he's talking about all the nations. He's talking about all people. When the birds of the air see this kingdom growth, what do they do? They nest there. They find their rest. They find their nourishment. Friends, I think when the world looks at your family life and your professional life and your political life, your economic life, every sphere of your life, when they look at that and it's, and it's in the contour of the kingdom, people want to rest there. They want to find their nourishment there. They find what they need in that place. Friends, the kingdom of God is like kudzu. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and it's like a mustard shrub. It will advance in common and ordinary ways. It will advance where it wants to advance, and it seeks to cover, make no mistake, every aspect of your life and our common life together. So put away the shears. Let the thing grow. Let it advance for the sake of the gospel. And for the sake of the world, may it be so. Amen.